Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. In the last year since the riots in Ferguson, Missouri, the relationship between police and communities of color has been tense. In many ways, it's been frayed. But lost in the conversation about race is the role of police unions, which may have a huge impact on how officers are trained, which policies are followed, and ultimately, how officers engage with communities. Today, where we live, we'll be talking about police training and community engagement, about how the instruction police get at the academy or in college may not line up with the experience that they have on the job. We'll also look at the difference between community attitudes toward policing and the police attitudes toward the communities that they serve. We'd like you to join us with your thoughts and questions. 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You can comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're joined first by Dr. Michael Jenkins. He's assistant professor in sociology, criminal justice, and criminology at the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. He's the co-author of a book called Labor Unions, Management Innovation, and Organizational Change in Police Departments with our other guest, John DiCarlo, who will be joining us in a moment. We'll be talking about the issue of police unions in just a moment. But first, I want to welcome in Michael Jenkins by phone. Welcome to our program, sir. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm wondering first if you can just broadly tell us, as someone who who has obviously police experience and is a criminal justice professor, what has this last year been like for for you and for police departments that you talk with around the country? Sure. It's unfortunately been quite busy for me as someone who studies police and who has worked closely with uh, John DiCarlo, who is a former police chief and current uh, academic in policing. Um, there's been a lot of controversy around the way that police and citizens have interacted. And I think what John and I have tried to do over the past year and a half is to add some perspective in helping the public to understand what gives rise to these situations and how we might move forward in ways that improve relationships between police and citizens. What's something that, that you think a lot of the public doesn't get, maybe, about the, the work that police do that, that you wish you could get across as part of this conversation? Sure. I think there's, there's an issue of the police role and how both citizens and police view that role within society. Um, we forget that one of the most basic principles of policing in a democracy it goes back to 1829 and Sir Robert Peel, one of his, uh, his principles, he was the, the, the founder of the Metropolitan Police Department in London. And he said that the police are the people and the people are the police. And the police are just those individuals who have full-time service to community well-being. So we, I think, are too often uh, holding police to account for the uh, lack of well-being in a community when really it's all of our responsibility as citizens to work with police to make communities healthy. And that goes beyond simply issues of crime, but rather issues of disorder and other quality of life concerns. Um, Police also, I think, are quick to, to define themselves as a profession as one that is focused on law enforcement and crime fighting. And yet we know that a lot of what police officers do involves 
other more mundane and routine interactions with citizens having very little to do with investigating crime, arresting individuals. Um, some studies show that about 80% of police officer time is focused on maintaining order and serving the public. And I think that it's important for uh, police in the way that they view themselves and the ways that society view police to keep that in mind. I think that that second point is is so important, but I wonder if police departments and police officers individually around America are are incentivized to look for the wrong things. If if indeed their job is largely to interact with the community, to make people feel safe, to do an awful lot that is not investigating crime, why is it that that so often we hear statistics that seem to suggest that that cops are incentivized to actually root out crime? They're they're incentivized to uh, make arrests, to do one type of police work over another. Are, are the incentives uh, all messed up? I, I think there's something there in that we have traditionally measured police success by the amounts of arrests that they've made, the amounts of citations that they've written, and then have correlated that with reductions in crime and have held them accountable then for reducing crime and for the different crime levels in various cities. Um, so that certainly has fed into that. And it's also just the image that we have of police as crime fighters, because after all, when it comes time to make an arrest, when it comes time to chase down a suspect um, who's just committed a crime, when it comes time to uh, respond to an active shooter in our schools or wherever that might be, it's the police who we do expect to show up, and it's the police who have to be well-trained and ready to do that. So, you know, it speaks to that very important role that they do play, um, as well as, as, as you mentioned, the various incentives that we have for how we measure police. And I think because of the events in Ferguson, in Baltimore, and in New York City, in, in, in towns across the country, um, we are starting to step back and reexamine what it is that we expect of our police and how we might hold them accountable for the types of activities that they're more likely to be involved in because they are doing these jobs well, and it's, I think, in all of our interest to have officers rewarded for doing the jobs that they do well. And um, in the end, it will result in um, even more healthy communities. We're talking about police training with Michael Jenkins, an assistant professor in sociology, criminal justice, and criminology at the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. He worked closely with John DiCarlo, a former Branford police chief and professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven, who will join us shortly. If you have questions, 860-275-7266, as we talk about the changing role of policing in America. You, you talked earlier about how the community needs to take some responsibility and, and work with police to make sure that overall the community is is safe and well-run and that we're taking care of one another. I think one issue that comes up certainly in the last year more than ever before in my lifetime that I remember is that many people don't want to work with police because they, they fear the police. They worry that the police aren't looking out for them. Uh, police often expect neighbors to to snitch or, or tell on other neighbors who are doing something wrong, but they see all too often that police themselves have a culture that does not allow for a bad cop to tell on another uh, cop or the other way around. And I, I guess I'm wondering if there's something to that as well, the, the trust factor that's maybe been frayed between many communities and the police and how we begin to repair that. Yes, certainly. One of the big buzzwords over the last few years has been police legitimacy. 
and oftentimes that's viewed as the police being viewed as legitimate within the eyes of citizens. So that has to do with the ways that police treat citizens and the ways that police are doing their jobs in the communities. But there's also an issue of legitimacy when it comes to police uh, and how police leaders treat their subordinates uh, when it comes time to uh, hold a, an, an individual officer for account for bad behavior, when it comes time to investigate um, complaints from the community against certain police officers. And, um, you know, I, I think you may be on to something. You know, we expect citizens to cooperate with the police and to share information about either their own victimization or, or victimizations that they've witnessed. And uh, we need to also expect the same for police. I, I think, by and large, uh, police do uh, do that. They do cooperate in investigations of fellow police officers and um, because no good police officer wants to have their reputation tarnished as a result of some bad police officers. Um, a big high-profile case that we've been watching recently was the was the videotaped um, assault, really, on James Blake, the professional tennis player, uh, standing outside a hotel, uh, wrongly fingered for a, a scam, and tackled by police officers who were not wearing uniforms. Later, the NYPD itself apologized to Mr. Blake for the actions. But I think a lot of people look at the, the statement from the police union and the fact that the officer didn't lose his job, that he's essentially been reassigned as as a sensitive. If I, in my job, did, did my job so badly and someone was hurt or assaulted, I'd probably be fired. And, and I think a lot of people look at that um, Michael and say, well, why didn't he lose his job? And and I know that's part of what uh, you and John are getting at, and you're you're writing about unions. But I think that that's a that's a really important question for a lot of Americans today. Sure, you're right. It does have uh, you know something to do with union protection there and having to follow the due process when um, when holding that individual officer for account. But it also has to do with this idea that um, we are slow to second guess officers and the decisions that they make in trying to keep themselves safe. And I think that the events in the, over the last year and a half have shown that maybe we've gone too far in this element of, of, of danger and this element of uh, keeping one's uh, own person safe. Um, and, you know, I think the, the Blake case is, is a good example of that, where uh, sure, the officer might have had all these different justifications for how he responded in that way to keep himself safe and so as to surprise the individual. But I think most of us would say that he crossed the line and there were more ways, there were better ways that he could have handled that so as to have still kept himself safe but also uh, investigated what he thought was, was potential wrongdoing while respecting the individual citizens' uh, protection and, and their rights. Um, I think it was a step in the right direction for the NYPD to come out publicly and, and make a statement that, uh, did not, um, that did not condone the actions of the officer. Um, again, historically in policing, there had been kind of a circling of the wagons around individuals who made decisions, decisions like that, partially out of respect for uh, fellow police officers and also, as I, as I mentioned, because we don't like to second-guess police when they're making decisions about how to best keep themselves safe. 
We're talking with Michael Jenkins, an assistant professor in sociology and criminology at the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about police training with John DiCarlo, a former Branford police chief and now professor at the University of New Haven. If you've got questions, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about policing, police training, police unions. It's the subject of study by Michael Jenkins from the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. He's an assistant professor of sociology, criminal justice, and criminology. He's also co-author of a book called Labor Unions, Management, Innovation, and Organizational Change in Police Departments. His co-author is John DiCarlo, former Branford police chief and now professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven. Uh, He joins us in studio today. And uh, John DiCarlo, welcome back to our program. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. John, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, I'd like to maybe just pick up where we were talking uh, with Michael Jenkins about the event events of the last year and, and get some of your broad thoughts before we dive in too deeply into what you think has changed about the relationship between police and communities that they served in this last year as we've seen violence and riots and videos coming out seemingly almost every day that that feel incriminating and certainly seem to fray the trust between police and the communities that they serve. What a great question. Uh, actually, uh, what has happened between policing and communities is uh, a state of awareness of uh, some of the issues that we have seen over the, the last uh, two years, uh, starting uh, really with um, Eric Garner in, in Staten Island is one of the uh, the seminal cases that started to change public opinion about policing. Um, we have seen a dissemination of information, a lot of information through um, uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook and uh, other uh, uh, social media uh, that we have never seen before. So we're not getting news uh, just through uh, mainstream news channels any longer. Uh, now, uh, when when police officers do something, and, you know, there, <clears throat> there are 700,000 cops in the United States, uh, 312 million people. Obviously, you send, uh, you send people out there to enforce laws and to uh, police communities um, every day, 24-7. There are going to be mistakes, and uh, invariably... And uh, what I think is is that we have seen an actinic focus of um, of, of the uh, social media and and uh, very often the mainstream news on these mistakes uh, where they have not been really paid attention to. They, they've always been there. You know, police have always made mistakes. Well, and, and I wonder how much it, it actually changes the day-to-day life of a cop walking the streets to know that these cameras are everywhere. I mean, this is something that years ago when you were doing this, it wasn't there. We weren't talking about body cameras, certainly on police officers, but we also weren't talking about almost every citizen with a cell phone that they can instantly tweet something. Has that substantially changed the way policing is done, or has the policing not caught up to the technology yet? Oh, interestingly, the the, uh, the way cops police uh, is not going to substantially change. Uh, it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a uh, as we see, it's morphing more into the community uh, policing uh, milieu than uh, we have seen before. But <clears throat> very often, as technology has changed, uh, cops found themselves, and I'm quoting Dean Esserman, the chief of New Haven here. Uh, cops have found themselves very often uh, being the only people at uh, at a scene without cameras. Uh, so uh, we we saw a study come out of Rialto, California, by a fellow named Ariel Barack Ariel, and uh, he he looked at 
hanging police cam, uh, police body cams on the guys going out into the street. And what he found is that um, uh, what he found is is that actually uh, the cameras increased civility uh, both by the police officer and by the community member. Um, unfortunately, uh, reality, the reality of that has not necessarily held true. We just see uh, the results coming out of San Diego Police Department after a year of hanging body cameras on police officers, and we actually have seen, uh, and, and this this is raw data, this has not been analyzed, uh, the reasons for this have not been uh, looked at yet, but we have actually seen use of force complaints uh, I'm sorry, civilian complaints have gone down, but use of force has actually gone up uh, with the body cameras on. So we ask ourselves, are the are we documenting more justified uses of force? Uh, these are very complex questions uh, and interactions between uh, the police and uh, the community. And the use of force uh, in those interactions is always really scary and, and complex. You, you mentioned the term community policing, and it's something certainly that we've heard for, for years when I've talked with Chief Esserman, uh, Chief Ravella here in Hartford, uh, many other police chiefs around the country. They they talk often about uh, community policing. And I think a lot of people don't know exactly what that means. You you instituted this at, at the Brantford Police Department when you were there. What does community policing mean to you? How, how does it look on the ground with, with individuals? It, it's interesting that you should say that, and you're absolutely right, uh, as, as the idea of community policing has, and we even have, by the way, a federal office called the, uh, community, uh, the Office of Community-Oriented Policing, or the COPS office, um, and as the idea or the concept of community policing has proliferated around the United States, there has been a lot of confusion, not only by the public, but by police. Uh, what is this stuff? You know, we live in a uh, we live in an uh, organizational um, uh, paradigm with policing where there are 18,000 police departments in the United States. As I said before, 700,000 cops. So <clears throat> you come out with a new concept. How, how really do you get that out there and, uh, and explain what it is and train for it? Um, what we uh, what we Look, when we, we look at community policing, you know, we encounter very often uh, police departments, some small police departments will say, yeah, well, we've got a person on a bicycle and they're talking to people in the middle of town. We do community policing. And indeed, the, uh, the more complex idea of community policing is um, all about procedural justice. It's all about legitimacy. It's all about contact. It's about police officers being a part of the community instead of apart from the community. And, and uh, so when we did uh, community policing in Brantford, it was something that everybody bought into. It was a, an articulable idea from by everyone in the department. And uh, it just simply was making, uh, uh, making cops part of the families of uh, of the residents. Uh. Well, and a, and a part of that, too, that I think people maybe don't understand this, why community policing in some uh, in some sectors maybe makes a lot of certainly urban residents roll their eyes is I think a lot of city uh, police departments say I'm community policing, just as you said, because I'm getting my cops out of the cars. I've got them on bikes and they're walking around and that is community policing in their minds. But this whole idea of, of procedural justice, of of Talking with people as part of the community is a much different thing. It, it would be it would be interesting to talk for a moment about the role of police um, stumbling upon something which maybe seems like it could be a dispute and working to a resolution in which everyone walks away and no one goes away in handcuffs. Like that feels to me like what families do 
because you don't want people being punished all the time in families. You want people just walking away, shaking hands, and going about your own business. But that's got to be hard for cops, right? Well, it, it is It is hard for cops because cops are always faced with, uh, with this. You know, we want to be... Uh, we want our cops to be proactive, and uh, we want our cops to get out there and solve problems. We really want them to prevent, just like doctors will tell you, hey, you need to stop smoking because you're going to get lung cancer. We want to prevent that disease, and we also want to prevent the disease of crime. The way we do that is by preventive policing, and community policing certainly uh, uh, encompasses uh, and uh, embraces that concept. But very often, <clears throat> what we find are police departments who have become reactive. Is it because of bad management on the part of police chiefs? No, not necessarily. Uh, police chiefs are very often working in what we call a 911 culture. So we have become very reactive. You, you call, we come. And, uh, but what happens when we go beyond the 911 call and uh, we, uh, we have to stop uh, um, responding w- when we do stop responding to calls and start getting enough people on the street to actually act proactively. So, you know, we, we tried uh, we tried to do things, and this, this I'm talking for the entire country, we tried to put uh, police out there to do proactive policing, but what we find very often is, is that the number of calls that the police department gets just negates the effort. Uh, it it uh, doesn't allow them to really get out there and be uh, in front of the uh, crime. It, it, but that's like any job, really, right, is is you have good plans to be proactive, right. and then the paperwork builds up. Some, some people are calling, and all of a sudden you have to react to things. So how do you get around that? Well, I think that uh, the way uh, we, we get around it is, is we have to we have to reexamine the way that we look at policing. Uh, and we, uh, we have to, and, you know, and it's not just us. It's not just the police organizations, but it's the, the, the way we legislate rules for policing. It's the way we uh, take a look at uh, uh, how the community uses the 911 system. Uh, in, in essence, you know, when you can't figure out what to do and there's no one else to call, who do you call? You call the cops. And uh, so uh, what? It, it's a whole restructuring of the way that we police. It's, it's bringing in civilians to do jobs and police departments that police, that we, so that we could free up the police officers to get out there and act proactively. It's uh, bringing in uh, organizations like police auxiliary, uh, police reserves, supernumerary police officers. Uh, and these are all things in the, of the past uh, that, uh, that we, uh, we need to, uh, the idea of which we need to reinvigorate. S- supernumerary police officers? Yeah, isn't that a what great word? What does that word? mean? <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, it's a term that is almost exclusive to Connecticut. Only Connecticut can make up a word like supernumerary. Probably, yes. And uh, uh, what it is is a, a part-time police officer. And uh, uh, very often uh, uh, in the past what we saw was is when we hired part-time police officers, and these folks came from all walks of life. They were attorneys. They were uh, EMTs. They, were, uh, they came from everywhere, engineers. And uh, we, we were able to put them to work beside a regular full-time police officer. And very often, these people went on to become full-time police officers. But because they were working and we got to see their job product, uh, we were able to vet them better, which is a huge, the selection is a huge thing in policing. And, and that's actually something we want to get to in a moment. We're talking with uh, John DiCarlo from the University of New Haven and uh, Michael Jenkins from the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. We're talking about policing and police training on the program today. We're going to take some of your calls at 860-275-7266. Derek is calling from Windsor. Hello, Derek. John, how are you? Great job as usual. Thank you. 
I have two comments sh- briefly, and the first one I would like to ask your guests is that I understand that there's a quota that the police officers have to meet each and every month. I don't know how true that is. I just like him to comment on it. And doesn't that delegitimize the officer's job in some way? In other words, if the end of the month is coming up and he isn't close to that quota, doesn't it put him under more pressure, you know, to stop, you know, people from sometimes minor infraction that they would normally warn you about? And two, they, they talk about bad cops, good cops. Why, anytime, I, most time I see the, the cops, you know, in, 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 in confrontation with anybody, they don't have to be hitting the person. I mean, even if the person is, is not, you know, being violent in any way, why they have to be hitting people? And where are the good cops in that time to, to, to talk to the others, to, you know, to, to bat them off, so to speak? Well, Derek, thank you for the for the two questions, and, and maybe what I'll do is is go to to Michael quickly to to answer the first question. Um, but I'd like to I'd like to talk more about some of Derek's second question. The first question, Michael, uh, he talks about is about quotas, and there's a there's a sense amongst many community members that cops have to you know take in a, a certain number of people, they have to write a certain number of tickets, they have to depending on the community, make a certain number of arrests. And and Derek wonders, is this true? And if so, does it impact policing? What do you say? I think for the, for the most part, quotas are not allowable in uh, police departments. However, what we have seen is kind of the unofficial supporting of quota systems as a way of gauging the productivity of officers. And as we discussed earlier, uh, any time that you are valuing the quantity of one's activity over the quality of what they're actually doing, I think that's harmful above and beyond any issues of legitimacy that the caller mentioned. Hmm. John DiCarlo, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree with Michael completely. Uh, you know, quotas are, are against the law. Uh, they uh, uh, they don't exist officially. Uh, however, when you see systems uh, like Comstat in New York, for instance, uh, uh, holding police officers accountable, you know, it's all about the numbers. And although there is no definitive number, go out and make 15 arrests and 30, give 30 tickets, um, you are encouraged uh, sometimes to have to be productive. Uh, and if you're not productive, and how do we measure that productivity, as Michael just uh, alluded to? You know, how do we measure productivity uh, by police? Do we measure it by the absence of crime or the number of arrests? I would say that we measure it by the absence of crime. And, and I, I got good backup there, John, because uh, in, uh, in 1829, Peel, uh, you know, the guy that started the uh, Metropolitan Police Department in London, um, and, and the Brits say that he didn't really start the first police <laughs> department, by the way. Uh, but uh, he said the same thing. He said, we measure the effectiveness of police by the absence of crime. And that doesn't mean certainly arresting people, because if you prevent crime and get out in front of it, you don't have the have to. But I, I also wonder, too, though, if and, and I think that that makes more sense than than counting the number of arrests. But is there a better metric? Is there one about about community well-being that has nothing to do with the absence or the presence of crime? Because I think one way to read this is the lack of crime that becomes official and that we see in statistics may very well mean that crime is going on that we are not rooting out. Crime is going on that goes beneath the surface. Is there another way to to measure community happiness, well-being, that is more what the cops should be focusing on? What a great question. Uh, Michael and I did a study a couple of years ago, and we, we actually uh, took a, 
took a town and we trained the officers uh, in, in doing five different types of policing, community policing, problem-oriented policing, uh, order maintenance policing, and um, hotspots policing. And we measured the satisfaction of the community uh, when we were doing this experiment. And it was uh, what we found was is that we had really happy cops and really happy people when we were doing community policing. And, of course, you have to understand there is no pure intervention. Uh, cops do uh, a lot of different things, but we tried to sequester the intervention uh, d- during this experiment. And what we found was is that it didn't affect crime uh, a, a huge amount, but what it did do was uh, it, it made for happy happy people, happy residents. And uh, so if we look at police as guardians of the community rather than warriors that are fighting crime, um, then we, we have we had a success. And of course, that gets to so many of the questions that we've that we've raised in the last year post Ferguson. I mean, if you if you outfit police like warriors, they may tend to act more like warriors. Um, we've certainly spoken a bit about that. Let's go to Derek's second question, John. I'll go to you first on this. He he says, look, part of the thing that we capture on videotape is is police hitting people, and sometimes it's justified, and often it's not justified. But we've heard terms, terms I've never heard before, John, like pain compliance, the the notion that I need to actually make someone stop what he's doing. And so I'm going to hit him until he stops what he's doing. Derek asks, I think, a very good question. How much of that is necessary? How do you, as someone who takes a look at these videos and, and trains officers, how do you say this is something that was fully justified. And this over here, this is something that absolutely never should have happened when the nightsticks come out or when the tasers come out or when cops are just pushing somebody down on the ground. It is incontrovertible that police are the only members of government that are authorized to use force against the public. And uh, that is that is uh, that offends sensibilities very often because we are not a violent culture generally you know the, the vast majority of people don't subscribe to violence uh, and it's an anomaly so when we see that happen and when we see it officially happen through representatives of our government it's upsetting and however uh, there there is something called a continuum of force uh, that police subscribe to and basically, it starts at, at mere presence when a police officer walks in and then it escalates to verbal orders and then it goes to, to pain compliance holes and then it goes to uh, less than lethal force and then it goes to lethal force. And usually uh, what the, the, uh, the way we measure what's going to be used is by what's being used against the police officer. So, for instance, there was just a video uh, that was very popular on social media where there was a guy on PCP and he was in a McDonald's and the cops could not get control of him. He was running around. He was frightening people. And uh, they ended up uh, using a taser on him. And um, uh, to the people, the onlookers, this was a horrific thing. The guy was unarmed and uh, the he, he was he – was, uh, running around, uh, and he was in—I think he was in his undershirt, as a matter of fact—and uh, looking at it, it looked like the cops were brutalizing him. But the cops, indeed, because he was on this drug and he didn't feel anything, could not get control over the guy. Uh, so they—they they had to escalate the type of force they used. Um, that said, are there anomalies? Are there uses of force that should ever happen? Certainly, there are. Uh, you know, with seven hundred thousand. 
700,000 cops out there 24-7, it's, it's going to happen, just like doctors make mistakes doing operations and lawyers make legal mistakes. I, I'm wondering, Michael, if you can talk about the term resisting arrest and what that means to police, what it maybe means to citizens, and, and how maybe a, a, a better definition for all of us might, might make sense, because often what we, what we see in instances like the one that John DeCarlo just said is that officers will claim that someone is resisting arrest. I've seen videotapes of situations like that in which eight people maybe can't bring down someone who is on uh, some psychotic drug and is very difficult. And I've seen other instances where uh, immediately cops will rush into the scene, say someone is resisting arrest before they've even done anything. Can, can you talk, Michael, about that term, resisting arrest, and what it means? Sure. I, I, th- I think it speaks to the whole use of force continuum, right? So just as as police are, are interpreting a situation and determining what is the appropriate level of force to control a situation, uh, citizens are exhibiting those same levels of force on that continuum, going down from you know verbal assault to, to saying, no, I'm not going to listen to you, officer, I'm not getting out of my car, um, up to you know pointing a gun at an officer and sometimes pulling the trigger. Um, and I think we saw this in the Sandra Bland case, right, where she's sitting in the car telling the officer, I'm not getting out, you can't make me. Um, and I think that's a really good example of how um, how intricate and sensitive the uh, interaction between the citizen and the police officer is and how you can see how the behaviors of each of, of the citizen and, and the officer in that situation uh, can, can give rise to an escalation of the types of force that are being used. And what I think we need to do with this conversation is to – step back and reflect on how we might better train individual officers and hold officers accountable for the ways that they're controlling those situations, not only at the time at which they used what could be considered a legitimate use of force, but rather the the moments leading up to that when um, an interaction kind of blew up, Mm. uh, maybe partly because of the way that a police officer yelled at someone or a police officer, um, you know, ratcheted up a level of force that wasn't, necess- what wasn't necessary given what the citizen was doing. You know, in these interactions, um, there's always responsibility of the citizen to obviously comply with the police officer. Um, but there's a reason why we have police, and that's because citizens don't always comply. And so it's on the police then to be trained and to act in a way that controls a situation safely for both the officer and the citizen and also respects that individual citizen's rights, even when that citizen isn't complying. And I'm so glad that he raised the Sandra Bland case, because that's a perfect example, John, of of actually witnessing this this escalation. And it, it gets to a point at which we have a terrible outcome, but you can almost see it stepping from one point to the other. Talk about the training, how we might better train officers to de-escalate that situation as opposed to escalate it. It's not only – training is uh, training in, in diffusing situations is really, really important, and we don't do enough of it. When we look at the curriculum of uh, police academies, uh, we, we see a lot of law. We see a lot of uh, uh, defensive tactics and, and a lot of other subjects. Uh, we see very little uh, comparatively communication uh, and de-escalation. Uh, we need more of that. Also, John – uh, we need to select officers who are not predisposed to to that. You know, we have to vet them so that we are not we are not hiring the high school bully. Uh, we're hiring people who are compassionate. Uh, and there's something else, though. You know, and the vast majority of of cops that I have met 
um, are not bullies. They are people who want to help other people. But this brings me to a point where if we look at the president's task force on 21st century policing, uh, there's a whole section on officer wellness. And we need emotionally and mentally healthy healthy cops to serve the public. And how do we do that? You know, there, there's a uh, Heath Grant over at John Jay is doing a, a study on uh, something called compassion fatigue. Uh, and it's something that uh, uh, health, health uh, professionals uh, very often or people in the helping professions uh, get. And it, the real name of it is secondary stress disorder. And uh, what it what it boils down to is, is after you've been on the street and had people spit at you, lie at you, and do and, and just not really deal with the good people in the community, but just the criminals, uh, what happens is is that you start to get a little bit of fatiguing of your, your sensitivities, of your compassion. Uh, how do we help cops not have that happen to them? Uh, how do we keep cops emotionally healthy so they could serve the public? Uh, you know, we send a, a cop out onto the street, and we expect them to do the job. They're out there 24-7. But very often, we're not taking care of the people who we expect to take care of us, uh, and that's important. Uh, taking care of them, and also, you mentioned this briefly, but uh, we just have a moment before the break. Can you talk a bit about how we screen the individuals in the first place? You you, you said, I, we don't want to hire the high school bully. How do we know we're not getting the high school bully in the job? Right now, uh, you know, we, we have 700,000 cops, and if we look at a general distribution, if we look at a general uh, a bell curve, uh, we have under the right tail the, the super cops, you know, the Bill Brattons, the uh, Chuck Ramseys, the, uh, all, all the great cops in the world. There's 70,000 of them. In the middle, there's a 80 percent, um, and uh, they come in and do their jobs every day. They're fine people. <clears throat> under the left tail of that distribution, we have the people who we need to move out of the job, you know, they, in, into other professions that they might be able to do well, and that we do that through selection. You know, Jim Collins wrote this great book, From Good to Great, How Companies Go From Good to Great. How does a police department or the police profession do the same thing? How do we get good to great cops? And and we want to skew that curve. And we do that through selection. We can't just give them a MMPI to test for psychopathy. Uh, that's a low low bar. You know, we want our cops not to be psychopaths, but we want them also to have an aptitude to do the job. So perhaps better uh, selection uh, better training, uh, better uh, uh, better wellness programs, uh, better early warning systems, uh, and, and that's how we do it. You know, it has to be changed. It has to be more complex. It has to. We have to look at more factors. When we come back from our break, we're going to talk about the role of unions in policing today. It's something that our guest John DiCarlo and our other guest Michael Jenkins have been writing about. If you'd like to join us, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We'll come back right after this break. Where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up tomorrow, Rauf Mama is beloved by children and adults for his rich storytelling through music, dance, poetry, and song. He'll join us tomorrow to share his own story, a voyage that starts in West Africa and twists and it turns all the way to teaching right here in Connecticut. Hope you can join us for that conversation tomorrow. Today we're talking about police, police training, and now police unions with John DiCarlo. He's former Brantford police chief and now professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven. He's co-author of a book called Labor Unions, Management Innovation, and Organizational Change in Police Departments with Michael Jenkins, who is from uh, the uh, Criminology and Sociology Department at the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. 
Uh, we'll take some more of your calls in just a moment, but I want to get to this uh, this question, John, because of all the things that we that we have been talking about in this last year, we haven't really talked much about the role of police unions. You, you say in some ways this this issue kind of cuts two ways. Maybe you can give us a broad overview of what you and Michael found. Well, when we did the book, we weren't looking to certainly indict unions. Uh, we just wanted to understand uh, the role of unions uh, in the policy-making process in the operational process of uh, police departments and uh, to see what kind of a factor that they were in uh, in organizational change. Uh, certainly, uh, when I was uh, when I was a sitting chief of police, um, <clears throat> the union uh, certainly was always there. It was a presence that I had to deal with as much as I had to deal with the public. And um, uh, during that time, uh, I'm happy to say that I found uh, the union to be uh, extremely receptive if there was a quid pro quo. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, the, 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 one of the questions that we wanted to explore uh, was who were the police unions um, uh, serving? And uh, obviously, uh, one of the questions that we asked in the survey in the book um, was, who is responsible for public safety, the police union, the police administration, or a little bit of both? Mm -hmm. And uh, many police chiefs answered a little bit of both. And we were surprised by that. We looked and asked, is that a usurpation of, uh, of uh, the, the power of the police department or the administration of the police department? Uh, because in our experience and through the survey, we also found that the union advocated for the union, not for necessarily for the public. Uh, and that's the way unions work. They were formed because of the Byzantine practices, obviously, of um, of the uh, the way that municipalities worked uh, in the 20s and 30s uh, when police departments were new and uh, uh, coming, uh, coming uh, onto the scene. So uh, do they uh, – do they um, – affect the way policy is made, definitely. Uh, they definitely uh, do. Um, when you want to make change, uh, the first thing that you have to do is not necessarily go get the money for the change, uh, but you have to ask the union if that's okay to do. Uh, and, and so, Michael, do you find that in actuality there are rules and procedures, things that are done because of the presence of unions that, that actually diverge from what uh, many police departments want to have happen? I mean, is, is that part of the deal that's made by having police unions? Oh, I think we may have lost Michael for some reason. And yeah, here I am. Oh, you're here. I, I, I apologize. I, I, I was just asking you that question. I, I wonder if, if, if that is part of the, uh, the deal with police unions, that indeed you have unions acting differently than, uh, than police forces want them to. Have you found evidence of this? Sure. You know, obviously when we're discussing unions, especially in um, these new economic times, there's, there's conversations about finances and money. And uh, one of the uh, takeaways from our research on police unions is that while the police administrators take a, a large amount of, of the responsibility for adhering to their, their budget constraints, um, they also are, as John mentioned, um, ceding a lot of what the police department is supposed to do over to the responsibility of the union. So we found the administration uh, perceived that the union is responsible for helping the department with ensuring public safety, with public satisfaction. And then, of course, um, officer morale. But you have this this disconnect where the administrators are working with a, a, a finite amount of resources, and they're they're um, you know forced to deal with a union that um, does not 
you know, in, at least in the minister's mind, a union, union that does not um, concern itself with the limited amount of resources that they have. And um, another takeaway from, um, you know, some of the, the, the research that we did here is that um, certainly the labor organizations work with the best interests of their officers in, in mind. Um, administrators agreed with that, but um, they disagreed that the labor organization works toward the best interest of the community. And so I think that, um, at least from the police administrator's perspective, there needs to be some, I think, better type of weaving between um, the relationship that they have with the union and the union's relationship with the community, if they should have one at all. I, I want to go to Greg, who's calling from Ledger. Hi, Greg, go ahead. How are you? Good, what's up? Yes, I uh, used to represent the International Brotherhood of Police Officers in Connecticut as a representative of police officers. I did this for three years. I work for another union now. Um, Regarding whether the police union serves the public or, you know, serves its members, they're legally required under law to represent their members. And if they do not, they're subject to, you know, um, suit by the members for um, disrepresentation. Uh, also, I found in every contract I've ever negotiated, one of the first clauses in the collective bargaining agreement is a management rights clause, which clearly retains all rights to the municipality for which the police officers work for. So all rights are going to be retained by the town or the municipality. Um, the union's sole purpose is to bargain over wages, hours, and working conditions. And I don't really think it's representative to say that somehow a police union um, interfere, if you will, with the direction in which the, admin- the police administration moves the, um, you know, the police force. Well, no, Greg, absolutely. And I think your point is very well taken. That's that's the role of, of, of unions. One thing I guess I'll ask you, though, is we've seen, for instance, there's been a lot of disputes between teachers' unions and municipalities over the years, but we've seen some unions decide that they're going to come to the table and they're going to work in a in a slightly different way, not not just solely to uh, the benefit of their constituents, but to try to see that deals need to be made with the community, with the municipality, to try to maybe change work rules in a way that, that makes sense for everybody. Do you see police unions as being able to to maybe make some of the steps that some teachers' unions have, have done to solve the intractable problems that we have in education uh, on the police side? Well, that's ironic because I do now work for uh, teachers' unions. <laughs> obviously, obviously the, the role of teachers got into teaching, police, police officers got into uh, law enforcement, obviously to serve the public. And sure, there needs to be a balance struck and, um, and, and both um, representing its members as well as serving the, uh, the community in both in both cases, both police and teachers. Um, but to take the position that somehow the role of the police union somehow encroaches on how um, a police department functions, I, I really can't support that theory. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your phone call. I really appreciate it. John DeCarlo, do you have a, a thought? Yeah, I mean, we we aren't trying to indict uh, police unions, but uh, what what we and what we found, by the way, is is that there is not a huge amount of difference in union states and right to work states. Uh, there are employee organizations and right to work states that are not unions uh, that still affect uh, organizational change. Um, unions and uh, unions and um, uh, 
employee organizations and right-to-work states uh, are an extra layer of complexity in making organizational change. And uh, certainly what the union or the organization is trying to do is protect the their constituency. And uh, we are not arguing uh, that uh, that the unions are trying to do anything wrong. What we are saying is, is that sometimes... Uh, indeed, they they are perceived as co-employers, and uh, they uh, sometimes um, uh, inhibit a change in organizations. Uh, whether that is legal or not, certainly it's legal. It's uh, they're, they're they're legally constituted to do that. Uh, uh, Beverly in Hartford, you got the last word, but you just got a few seconds here. I apologize. Go ahead. Not a problem. Um, so my question, going back to your community-based idea, is when the body of police officers does not accurately represent the community in which they police, how do you integrate a more community-based type of service, particularly in an area like the north end of Hartford? And you're basically talking, and thank you very much, Beverly. I'm going to take her question to mean often you've got officers who don't live in the community, don't look like the community, policing the community. Just have about 30 seconds, John, but I'd love your thoughts. Wow. Uh, we, we want uh, officers to be professional. We want them to represent the communities. We want them to relatively look like the communities. Uh, however, uh, it's very, very often the case difficult. Uh, for police departments to recruit people from local communities. So it's a challenge. It's something that we are trying to do uh, nationally, uh, and it's a challenge to do because what happens is is that uh, we look uh, we look in the in the blocks and miles surrounding and uh, aren't able to recruit people from that area. But but it's it's briefly, it's something that you think would help if we could do more of. It, Absolutely. John DiCarlo is a former Brantford police chief. He's now a professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven. It's good to have you back in the state teaching here, and thank you so much for coming up. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Thanks also to his colleague, Dr. Michael Jenkins, uh, who's an assistant professor in sociology, criminal justice, and criminology at the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. Continue this conversation online. Go to wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski, and this is Where We Live.